chapter 20. And if you need a Bible, just uh, give some kind of visible indication and the ushers will drop one off to you so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 20. Now, um, this whole problem that I have is with content and time. And I cannot seem to find the place where you make the two balance out. And this chapter, you know, you, you look at it and you, if you're one of those people that says, hurry up and finish, you know, you see, okay, there's only 15 verses. This should be pretty good. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this 15 verses. You know, it really ties together so much uh, in the Bible that, you know, you kind of like, you, you understand a lot of things, but there isn't full closure on how a lot of it works. And there's so much in this chapter that is, is kind of completed. And it's very satisfying to kind of see how it all fits together. But I want to finish it all tonight. Um, so that's my struggle. We might not, we might, um, but I'm saying all this not to waste time, but I'm saying that, that we might, we might just run just a little long tonight, just a little bit. But I promise you I won't waste your time saying things that I didn't prepare or going down stupid rabbit trails, you know, that don't make sense, you know, in the grand scheme of what we're talking about. You know, but, uh, but maybe not. We'll see how it goes and maybe you'll say, oh, we're getting out on time. Well, then we'll finish next week. But good stuff. I'm excited about it, but I'm also nervous because I want to get through it. But uh, chapter 20. Now, in our last study... Revelation chapter 19. We saw the close of this period of time called the, the Great Tribulation. Now you know by now that the book of Revelation breaks down into three sections. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. And chapters 6 through the end of the book are all future tense. It's stuff that has not happened yet for you and I as we sit here right now. Now, that future tense section of the book of Revelation also breaks down into three sections. First of all, it breaks down into what we see in chapters 4 and 5, and that is the church in heaven, the rapture. Part 2 is the tribulation on earth, chapters 6 through 19, that we finished in our study last week. And then part three of this future tense section of the book of Revelation is chapters 20, 21, and 22. And that is basically what happens after the second coming of Christ. What happens after Jesus returns to the earth, he puts an end to the book of, or I mean, an end to the battle of Armageddon, and, 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 and we kind of move on from there. You know, right now, we look at, we say the end of the world, and we're speaking of the second coming, we're speaking of Armageddon, but then what? And, and there's kind of like a big question mark in a lot of our, our minds, or, or maybe we just say, well, we don't know, we won't know. But there is stuff that's revealed and given to us here. So last week, we finished the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon was, was closed, the marriage supper of the Lamb was described the second coming of Christ was revealed to us there. We saw it in those verses. And as we get into chapter 20, we begin to see what happens after that. And it really breaks down into five things. This chapter has five different subjects or five different areas that are tied up for us and, and described 
and explained. And two of them kind of kind of intertwine with each other. But, you know, what's going to happen immediately following the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation? Keep in mind that the earth at that time is going to be a war zone. We've seen that the sea has been turned into blood. All of the palatable drinking water in the world has been turned to blood. It's no longer drinkable. The rivers, you know, the trees have been burned up. You know, great earthquakes have shaken and removed the mountains and the islands. I mean, the stench and the heat and all of the things that are going to be physically part of what this earth is at that time. It's just going to be a disaster zone when Jesus comes back and ends the battle of Armageddon. But when he comes, these are the things that will happen. First of all, and we see it here in these first opening verses, is that Satan, that great dragon who is responsible for all of the carnage that will be present, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, when I read this, I almost expect that it's going to say that after this, I saw the entire host of God's angelic realm gathered up in arms you know, grabbing chains and swords and being prepared for a great intervention, you know, as though it's going to be this incredible thing. But it doesn't say any of that. It just says, an angel. An angel. It isn't even like we saw in chapter 18, the angel that announced the doom of Babylon. It said, a powerful angel spoke with a loud voice and shone as the sun. I mean, you get this idea of this great majesty that this angel has. Not here. Satan's going to be bound by an angel, an angel, just one carrying a chain in his hand, one hand, just one hand with a chain, single angel goes, he grabs and he binds Satan. Just one. It's interesting to me. The prophet Isaiah describes Satan in this time, in the end. In Isaiah chapter 14, when it talks about his fall and his future, that is the devil, Isaiah uses these words. He says, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. The coming that is being described to us in Revelation 20. He says, it stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave in the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, and this is going back to the fall, what caused Lucifer, the beautiful angel, to become Satan, the devil. It says that he said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Now listen, here it is. Because we've seen the fall of Satan. And we saw the reason for that fall, the ambition, the pride of his heart stirring up within him, seeking to elevate and be something beyond what God made him to be. And then we see his destiny that he'll be brought to the sides of the pit. But look at the response of those that see, that look on and observe as Satan is put into this position, this pit, verse 16. It says, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. That means that they'll, you know, when you narrowly look at someone, you kind of focus in tunnel vision there. Your gaze kind of gives its attention from a broad variety of things to a singular thing. They will narrowly look at thee and consider thee. They'll think about you. They'll realize and ponder who you are and what it is that they're looking at. Saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? That opened not the house of the prisoners? In other words, you get the idea that those that are there, they look on and they say, that's it? You know, you kind of expect, you know, you hear dragon, you hear Lucifer, you see the carnage and all the destruction that is brought upon by his presence on the earth. And yet an angel with a chain, with one hand, grabs him, binds him, and everybody looks at him and goes, that's him? I think we give Satan a little bit more credit than perhaps is due. Yes, don't get me wrong, he's the prince of the power of the air. Paul said he's the God of this world, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Yes, granted, the Bible says that he is far more powerful than we are in the sense of what he is able to do and destroy. And the Bible says very clearly that we are not to get in his way or to stand up against him, but we are to always keep God between us and Satan because that's just the way it is. But I find it very interesting that it's just an angel that binds him. And that those that see will narrowly look on and say, this is the one that caused the earth to tremble and all of that. It's also interesting to me as I look at these verses and consider what's taking place here as Satan is being bound for these thousand years. That it is a direct attribute of Satan, and listen carefully, To not consider the end of the road that you're on. It's a direct attribute of Satan to not consider the end of the road that you're on. Again, he started as a beautiful angel. He's called the anointed cherub that covers. In Ezekiel chapter 28, he's described in glory as being, you know, clothed with jewels and every precious thing. That he himself in his body was an instrument of musical, you know, expression. That his pipes, it says, were in him in the time that he was created. He was this man, this angel that had this privilege, this incredible place within God's kingdom. This awesome responsibility of leading the host of heaven in worship of God. And he himself was, you know, a trophy of God's power and God's goodness. That's who he was. He was a leader in heaven. But he began down a road in his mind, the road that we read about in Isaiah chapter 14. An ambition crept in, 
a desire to elevate, to become more than what God had designed him to be. A usurper's mentality that he would take the throne of God and that he himself was actually more qualified to do what God did than God himself. And he began down this road within his mind that was fueled by his ambition. He grabbed his own destiny and he started down a pathway of rebellion. What we know for sure is that he absolutely did not consider where that road would lead. Because as we see it here in Revelation chapter 20, we see the end of the road for Satan. We see what comes at the end of that road that he started out thinking it would end somewhere, thinking that somehow it would work out, but rather finding a completely different thing at the end of it. Now, had he taken just one sober moment and maybe stepped back from the ambition, from the thrill of seeking to be something other than what he was, perhaps he could have realized. But he became blinded. Listen carefully. He became blinded by the ambition of his heart, and therefore he could not see where what he was doing would end him up at the end. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so, you know, impacting as we consider Satan here in his destiny in the study. The Bible speaks of you and I prior to our conversion to Christ. And it speaks of those that are still under Satan's dominion with this language. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says this. It says, In whom the God of this world, lowercase g, speaking of Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That the power that he exerts and exercises on people is that the Bible says that he blinds their minds and keeps them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel. Just as he himself is blinded and unable to see the end of the road that he's on, so also he does to those whom he controls. He keeps them from seeing the end of the road that they're on. It's easy to do, really, if you think about it. Because all Satan has to do to get someone to not think about where they're going to end up is continually fill their mind with what they'll get now. As long as it's in your mind what I'm going to get now, what pleasure I'll experience now, what prize I'll receive now, then what's going to come later doesn't matter. You know, I'll deal with that when it comes. It'll work out in the long run. Really, I need to worry about what's going on right now. And so he's able to blind the minds. I remember as a 15 or 16-year-old young man, brought up in a fairly stable home. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a functional family, but, you know, it was, it was a normal American upbringing. Good kids, you know, we did our thing that we were supposed to do, and our parents drug us to church, and, you know, we, we did all, all the right things, and we knew how to respect our elders, and we were kind of on this course of becoming normal, functioning citizens, and, you know, all the rest, we were good kids. And at the age of 15 or 16 years old, my parents were away. We were at that age where we could be trusted, you know, and take care of ourselves and all the rest. And so me and a few of my friends, we decided, hey, you know, there's an upper cabinet there in the kitchen with some bottles of questionable, you know, you get the idea. And and so we decided, hey, well, we'll just 
add a little bit to some things and we'll just go. And so we went out. And let me tell you something. That night, we had a great time. We didn't vandalize anything. We didn't break anything. We didn't get in any trouble. We, we, we just went out and we hung out in our little farm town neighborhood there. And we had a great time. There was nothing in it. And it, what happened, though, that night is that I started down a road that I didn't know the end of it. And see, what happened is that innocent night of just, hey, it's just fun. You know, we're kids. We're coming of age. You know, this is just youthful, you know, sowing of the wild oats. And it's just normal. What that became very quickly is a very destructive lifestyle. And what happened is that the immediate pleasure of hanging around with these people and participating in these things and going out and just having fun and it's innocent and it's all that, what happened is that it blinds the mind from seeing the end of the road that you're on. And that's what happened to me. But yet I always knew if I just took a sober minute, if I just stood back and said, you know what, if I keep going down this road, if I, if I really keep going in the direction I'm facing right now, I know where I'm going to end up. And I wasn't thinking heaven or hell. I was thinking... This is how these guys that are begging for money on the side of the street that have nothing, this is how they get started. But I don't have to worry about that. I'm just a youth. My whole life is in front of me. I mean, that's not going to happen to me. So I don't have to consider the end of the road that I'm on. I can't help in looking at this to think about the man Samson. Gifted. Anointed. Empowered destined to do great things in the name of the Lord, to put an impact on the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And yet he started down a road that he didn't consider the end of. He began flirting with temptation and sin, giving in in the small things which led to giving in in the big things. And ultimately, what happened to Samson? He was blinded. They caught him. They put out his eyes. And he spent the days he should have been fruitful for the kingdom of God grinding at the mill with his eyes put out. The potential that he had that God wanted to use the man's life for was ruined because he didn't consider the end of the road that he was on. He was blinded. Satan blinds the mind of those whom he controls, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel, the end of that road. To not consider the outcome of a situation or a lifestyle or a choice, to not consider the end of it before giving yourself to it is a clear and plain attribute of Satan. And I would warn you, be careful. Consider the road that you're on tonight. Where are you headed? Where is it going? Well, look at what it says concerning our adversary, Satan. It says that he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, this is the first mention in this chapter of this thousand years. It's going to be mentioned six times in the next six verses. It will be mentioned this thousand years, this millennium. We'll look at it in just a moment. And it says that he cast him into the bottomless pit. And shut him up. I love the King James there because that's exactly what Satan needs. He needs to be shut up. Now the Bible teaches very clearly that Satan cannot touch you. We'll talk about that more in a moment too. But what he can do is he can talk to you. And he does, doesn't he? 
He knows how to bring up the past. He knows how to bring up the present. He knows how to lie to us about our future. He's incessant in his speech. And sometimes you just want to say, shut up. Well, guess what? It's going to happen. It says the angel's going to shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Now, follow me here. Because this angel, this single, simple angel, grabs Satan, chains him, binds him, puts him in the pit, and then listen to the word. It says, set a seal upon him. The word seal there is, it's a word that means, and the definition of it is anything that tightly or completely closes or secures a thing. We understand the concept of a seal and what it does. It stops penetration. If something is sealed, then Something else cannot pass from the one side to the other side of the seal. We seal wood furniture that we make. Why? So that water, so that moisture, mildew, those things cannot penetrate the wood grain and rot the wood and ruin it. We seal the grout and the tile in our bathrooms and in our showers. Why? So that the water will not penetrate, get behind, and you know, basically kill the life of the thing. We understand the concepts of a seal. Now here it says that Satan is put into this bottomless pit. He's chained there. And then there is a seal that is set forth upon that pit so that he cannot pass out until that seal is removed. He's sealed there. Now why is that so significant? Here's why. Because the same exact word, the same seal that is used to keep Satan from escaping the pit that he has put in for those thousand years The Bible says that you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that in whom, speaking of Christ, you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, listen, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now let me ask you a question. If Satan, in Revelation chapter 20, is sealed into his pit so that he cannot escape. And Ephesians says that when you believe in the gospel of Christ and you come to him at the time of salvation, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let me ask you a question. Can Satan penetrate that seal? If he can't penetrate the seal in Revelation 20 and escape from the pit, he cannot penetrate the seal now and enter into you. There are many people, even Christians, that teach that it is possible for a believer in Jesus Christ to be possessed by demons or to be possessed by evil spirits or devils. That's absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same place at the same time. It is physically impossible. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Satan is called the prince of darkness. Logically speaking, the two things cannot co-inhabitate the same thing at the same time. God is not into timesharing. He doesn't let Satan have access at certain times while he moves out. It's his temple. It's been sealed and sanctified for his purpose. And therefore, Satan has no place in it. He's been driven out completely at the moment you believed. Many people believe that there's a such thing called a generational curse. Have you heard that one? That'll keep you up at night. That because, and they take it from scripture. They say, well, it's in the commandments that I will visit the children with their father's iniquity. 
And so they say, well, there are generational curses and generational demons in my life because of things that my parents and my grand... Listen, do you know how many grandparents you have? If that were true, you would be in some serious trouble because we're way down the human timeline and there's been a lot of sin that's taken place throughout the, throughout the years. The prophet Ezekiel, listen to it carefully, especially if you're one that's inclined to think in these ways. Ezekiel chapter 18, and this is Old Testament. God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel and he said this. He said, what mean ye that you use this proverb in my hearing? That because our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are set on edge. Because our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are ruined. Because they sinned, we are paying for it. It's a generational curse. God said even to Israel in the Old Testament, he said, you shall not have occasion to use this proverb anymore before me, saith the Lord. All souls are mine, God says. The soul that sins, it shall die. You are responsible for your actions, not for what your parents or your grandparents did. And furthermore, any curse, all curse that's been placed on anyone prior to their salvation in Christ is broken at the moment the Holy Spirit of God moves inside of you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The generational curse, the curse of sin, the curse of the law, it has been broken in Christ. And therefore, you are free in Christ to make the decisions that will govern your life. There is no demon that is forcing you into something. Now, granted, if you have a family history of certain things, you may have a tendency towards those things. That's normal. I have a long nose. Therefore... My kids most likely will have a long nose. You know, it's just, it comes with the territory. And we recognize the inclinations that we have because we know our families, we're familiar with them, but do not let Satan or any false preacher or teacher tell you that you are bound or that you need deliverance after you write a check to their ministry because you're under the generational curse. Listen, you are free in Jesus Christ. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and Satan cannot touch you. He's loud, but he can't touch you. Well, Satan is bound, we're told, for this thousand-year period of time. So the first thing that we see in this chapter is that Satan is bound. The second thing that takes place after the second coming of Jesus Christ is the judgment of the nations. Look with me at verse 4. He says, And I saw thrones. And they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And for the word of God. And which had not worshipped the beast. Neither his image. Neither had received his mark upon their foreheads. Or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him 
for a thousand years. Now, before we talk about the judgment of the nations, we have to lay some groundwork on this thousand years. I mean, that keeps coming up in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. In all of those verses, he mentions this thousand years. What is this thousand years thing? Well, biblically, it's called the millennium, or if you would, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And the millennium, the thousand years, is biblically speaking, a period of time after the second coming of Christ, where Jesus Christ rules and reigns upon the earth for a period of a thousand years. The earth during that time will be the way the earth is supposed to be. How many people looking around today at you know, the, the world itself and the geopolitical spectrum of men and the things that are happening in the world, how many people really believe that the world is the way it should be? Anybody? Any takers on things are, everything's in control and it's all good, you know? No, no, no. We look around the world today and we see chaos. We see, we have no clue what we're doing. You know, let's just throw money at it. You know, what? We'll just throw money at it. Just get Monopoly money and just throw it at it. You know, just try to fix it. It's chaos. It can't be fixed. It can't be solved. The world is not as it should be. During the millennium, Satan will be bound Jesus will be in control, he'll be ruling and reigning, and the earth will be as it ought to be. Isaiah describes what the world will look like during this time. Isaiah, in chapter 11, verses 3 through 9, Isaiah writes and he describes it. Now just listen to this. I just want to read to you what the world is going to be like during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. It says, and he, and, and he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But listen, verse 4. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins or his mind. Then it says in verse 6 that the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And it says a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, that is a poisonous snake. And the wean child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth, listen, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He goes on to describe it again in chapter 65, the same book, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 65, uh, verses 17 through 25. Listen to what Isaiah says about the kingdom age, that thousand years of Christ that's coming. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, 
nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Doesn't it sound good? I mean, you just read that and you say, yes, there's something that resonates inside of us as we read and hear those things because that's just the way it's supposed to be. It isn't like that now. He describes the time when the way of man will be righteousness, that doing the right thing will govern and lead the heart of man. It won't be corruption and violence that leads like it is now. It'll be righteousness. That the atmosphere on earth will be peace. That, that when you see someone, you won't immediately feel that intimidation of who, who are they and what do they want and do I need to put up a front and how do I act? None of that will be the atmosphere, that there will be peace. That the attitude of men's hearts will be rejoicing, that people will be glad in their heart internally in sincerity that it will be real, the joy. He describes a time when longevity of life will be restored. Remember how you read of Adam and Eve and their immediate descendants, how they were eight, nine hundred years old. He's saying that a child shall die a hundred years old. That longevity of life during the millennium will be restored. That people won't die at 60, 70, even 80 or 90 years old. That like the lifespan of a tree shall be the lifespan of my people. And it will be again where the conditions on earth, the atmosphere is renewed and life is supported and people will live. They'll live throughout the whole millennium. It won't just be a period. It says a time is coming when people will enjoy the works of their hands. It says that they will long enjoy the works of their hands. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get frustrated with the works of my hands because you don't ever get to enjoy them. Do you ever feel that way? The things that you've worked for your whole life or the things that you've built or the things that you've worked for, you finally attain them and then either you die or you lose them or, you know, and there's something that's so frustrating about the way things are now. Summer's finally here. Summer's gone. (laughs) Where did it go? You know. It says that prayer will be answered immediately before, while you're even speaking it. That will be a joy, won't it? We labor in prayer. Lord, when? Lord, how long? How's this going to work out? What's going to happen? And it says, while they are yet speaking, behold, I will answer them. And it speaks of a time when there will be an absolute absence of all violence. Now, the bad news is, are you ready? We're not going to be here. You know, so it's going to happen, but the bad news is that you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, those that have placed our faith in him, we're not going to be on the earth for that. That's the bad news. The good news is where we are 
is going to so far exceed all that we just read in glory and in quality that it won't matter to us. Paul said that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that are prepared for those that love him. Paul the apostle was caught up into the third heavens and he said, I can't even describe in any human language possible the things that I saw and for me even to try would be unlawful. And that's the glory that awaits us as we will be the bride of Christ and we will hold that position, that exclusive and high position in heaven of being intimately linked with Jesus in that way. We will not be citizens on earth during the millennium. At the time of the rapture, we will be caught up and something's going to happen. We are going to change and we will no longer be clothed with this earthly flesh, these human bodies. Let me read to you some scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The apostle Paul was answering the Corinthian church because they were confused about the resurrection. What's the resurrection of the dead? And where is heaven? And what's the difference between an earthly body and a heavenly body? And and how does all that work? And so Paul describes and he gives them an answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in verse 40, he says this. And listen carefully because this helps understand what's going on here. He says that there are also celestial bodies. That means spiritual or heavenly or angelic form of bodies. He says there are celestial bodies and there are bodies terrestrial, which is earthly. That's physical flesh, the way you and I understand it. He says, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. They're different. They're not the same thing. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, speaking of our earthly bodies now. But it is raised in incorruption. That means something's going to be different. We're not going to have the same bodies in heaven that we have on earth. They're going to be of a different substance and a different capacity. He says that in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. Nature, the word nature is in natural, and that's us. We're the same 23 elements that are found in a handful of dirt are the same 23 elements that make up you and I. It's natural. It's part of this earth. It is sown a natural body, but listen, it is raised a spiritual body. It's different altogether. And isn't it interesting that a physical body isn't even able to see a spiritual body, that it's completely different in even its dimension that it it operates within. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And also it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The second man was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, and in other words, the spiritual body didn't come first, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven, as is the earthy, such as they also that are earthy, that's us now, and as is the heavenly, such also, or su- such are they also that are heavenly. And listen, verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, 
we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That means that when the rapture happens and we are changed, our earthly, terrestrial, natural, physical bodies will be changed and we will be glorified and we will be given a spiritual, supernatural, glorified body. Now that's good news because a supernatural, spiritual, glorified, incorruptible body doesn't wear out, it doesn't get old, it doesn't get tired, it doesn't get hungry, it doesn't get grumpy, it doesn't get sleepy where it needs sleep, it doesn't get stressed out and overwhelmed and overburdened, it doesn't need any of the things that this physical body needs now, and it doesn't wear out and die in the end. It's eternal. So the body that is awaiting us at the time of the rapture so far exceeds anything that we've ever experienced in life and in energy and in capacity and in glory that what we are waiting for far outweighs what is awaiting those that live during the millennium. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now, if we don't have time, but read on on your own in 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul takes this right into the rapture. He says that there's going to be a moment when we will, not all of us are going to die, but we will be changed. When the rapture happens, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we shall be changed. This corruption will put on incorruption, that this mortal will put on immortality and death will be swallowed up in victory and will forever be changed. So all of that to say, we're not going to be in earthly bodies enjoying the fruits and benefits of the millennial reign of Christ on earth, but where we are will so far exceed any of that, it won't matter to us in the long run. So the question then that is, a, is raised by this, because here, we've already seen Armageddon. The end of the world has come as we know it. We are in glorified bodies. Who are these people that Isaiah is talking about when he speaks of, you know, those that will long enjoy the works of their hands? Who are the people that will be living on earth during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ or for this thousand years where Satan is bound and the world as it should be? Well, we know, first of all, it's not the church we've already seen. We are glorified. Jesus said that in heaven, we, we are neither married nor given in marriage. We no longer reproduce. We no longer operate in a traditional American type of family or anything like that. We're completely different. So it's not the church. Also, it is not the tribulation saints, those people that died. We know that because as we read again these verses here in Revelation chapter 20, uh, you know, verses 4, 5, and 6, it tells us that all of those that were beheaded for the witness of the gospel, those that didn't take the mark of the beast, those that didn't bow down and give their allegiance to him, it says that they also are glorified because they are partakers of the first resurrection and it says that they are complete the second death cannot touch them so they are no longer in physical body so it isn't the church it isn't the tribulation saints who then is left to live on earth during the millennium well here's the answer in daniel chapter 12 verses 11 and 12 the last few verses of daniel's prophecy he speaks of the time when Jesus Christ will return. He says that from the time that the abomination of desolations is set up, which happens during the tribulation, if you're here for the first time tonight, I just want to apologize right now because you're probably like, what in the world is he talking about? You know. But if you've been trekking with us and following through in our study of Revelation, the abomination of desolations, that midway point in the tribulation, Daniel says this, listen, from the time... 
that the abomination, that idol is placed in the temple of God by the Antichrist. He says there will be a period of 1290 days until the end. But then he says something that is so mysterious it makes you want to throw something at him. He says, blessed then are they that endure until the 1335 days. And then he ends the book. <laughs> Basically, there's one more verse and it's over. Hey, wait a minute, Daniel. Well, wait, what do you mean? Blessed is the one who endures. What goes on during the 45 days? There's 45 days after the return of Jesus Christ where something happens. What is it? What's going on in this, uh, you know, this thing during these 45 days? What are they for? Well, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Oh, goodness, I didn't put one of these tabs in here. <laughs> in Matthew chapter, oh, good, praise the Lord. Matthew chapter 24, 25, actually. It's Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Listen to what Jesus says, because this gives us the answer of what happens during those 45 days. He says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. And that's where this concept of the judgment of nations comes in. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least, one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he goes on, he gives the same thing. You didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't. Inasmuch as you didn't do it unto the least of these, you did not do it unto me. What is going on here? Because this passage does not seem to fit into any other place. What is it? This is the judgment of nations. There will be people that survived the tribulation period that did not take the mark of the beast. They didn't give their allegiance to him. Some of them gave their lives to Christ and were not martyred for their faith in Christ. Some of them will be Jews that survived in Petra. Remember, there are, you know, all the Jews that are still in Petra that are there. Not the 144,000, but those that have been, you know, saved and, and brought from Israel into that place. There will be survivors, those that make it through the tribulation period. Those people will then be separated as a shepherd separates sheep from goats based upon how they dealt with who? The brethren of Jesus. Who are Jesus' brothers? The Jews. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick and in prison you visited me. You came to me. My brothers, the Jews. Based on how they treated the Jews, based upon the faith that they had, 
which it would require them to have in that time to behave in that way, they will then be allowed to either go on and live into the millennial reign of Christ on earth in human fleshly bodies, or they will not be allowed to, based upon that fact. Now, no one who takes the mark of the beast will survive the battle of Armageddon. But those that didn't will be allowed to either come into that kingdom, that millennial reign, or not. And they will go into the millennium with human fleshly bodies. Longevity of life will be restored. The earth will be made new. The former things will not come into mind. And things will resume without a devil, without Satan there on the earth. Very interesting thing to think about. People that saw the tribulation will go on and partake in the millennium. And they will be the first inhabitants of a new earth. Now listen, these people will have a full knowledge of what was. They'll have understood the earth the way it was when Satan was ruling and reigning, the things that we see now. They will have survived the tribulation, meaning that they were first-hand witnesses of the judgment of God and the severity of the plague that came upon the earth during that time. And so they will have a full knowledge of everything that was, and yet they will go into the millennium and enjoy everything that now is. They will exist in human flesh. They will be fully flesh. They will reproduce. They will repopulate. They will not die. Some will, but life will, longevity of life will be resumed. People will live a long period of time, and the earth will very quickly be repopulated. In a thousand years... If the death rate is almost zero, how many people can populate the earth in a thousand-year period of time? The population of earth will expand very rapidly during the millennium. They'll enjoy the benefits of the new earth. They'll know what was. But listen, those that come after them, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, will only know what is. They will not have knowledge of what took place before. But they will hear it, you know, ear witness from those that experienced it, but they will not know it themselves. And that will present a problem as we will see as we move on through this chapter. But listen, it says this. It says that during that time, are you guys with me? Good. <laughs> are you lying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> listen, it says that Jesus during the millennium is ruling and reigning upon the earth. He is in control. He is the one that is governing and ruling. Now, the question is, will the people that are on earth be able to see him physically with their eyes? What will they know? What will they understand? What will their capacity be to communicate between the physical and the spiritual in that way? Now, no one knows absolutely for sure, but I think that they will not. I don't think that they will see Jesus. I think when he comes back at the end of you know, the, the tribulation and ends the battle of Armageddon. It says clearly that every eye will see him. But during the millennium, will Jesus be physically present? We could debate about it. I don't like to debate, but I don't think so. And here's why I think not. Because right now, all of the conditions on the earth as we know it are what they are because who is in charge? Satan. That's right. It's all because of that. He is the prince of the power of the air, the Bible tells us, that he is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. He is the God of this world, and that he is the one that is driving the system that is the corruption of man as we know it today. But let me ask you, can you see him? 
No, it's a spiritual realm. It's an invisible thing. It's governed and driven by that which we cannot see with our eyes physically. And I believe that it will be so with Christ during the millennium. Satan will be bound. He won't have influence in the heart and in the systems of men. The world will be as it should be. Why? Because Jesus will be in control. It will be a spiritual rulership in a spiritual realm. And listen, what it will be is a total reversal from what the world is now. What do you mean? Right now, the world operates like this. Most people are damned. Most people are not followers of Christ. They're not lovers of Christ. They're not obedient to Christ. They could care less about Christ. Just this whole fiasco that's going on in New York State with gay marriage and the legalization of it. I mean, it's absurd to think about if you really take a step back and realize that marriage is something that is instituted by God. He's the inventor of it. He made it. It isn't culture. It isn't man. It isn't tradition. God made marriage, and God says what it is. So for people to say, well, we don't even care about that that doesn't even matter we just want what we want and we're going to celebrate that we've been awarded this thing and to just disregard completely the fact that god made it it is a testimony of the fact that they don't care about god at all the majority of the world as we know it could care less about god and listen there are a few you and i that do but it is much more common to hate god than it is to love god in the world today During the millennium, it will be the total reversal. Most people will know the Lord. Most people will will follow him. There will be a few that do not. We know that because Isaiah told us that the man who is accursed or a sinner will be accursed at 100 years old. We know that there will be people that are in rebellion against God, but it will be the reversal of what it is now. You understand? It'll be different. the, The world will be flipped right side up again. Most will follow. Few will rebel. Now, listen carefully because, you know, just to throw this at you. Right now, you have the perfect storm of rebellion against God. You have three things that we're going to end. There's no way we're getting through this chapter. Don't worry. You know, you can loosen your seatbelt a little bit, you know. (laughs) But there are basically three things right now that are contributing to, to the world as we know it today. There is the world in all of its sin and temptation and all that is of the world. There is the devil which then uses the lusts and the pleasures of this world to tempt our flesh, number three. So you have the world, the devil, and the flesh. And when you put these three things together, you have the perfect storm of rebellion and sin. Because the world is very alluring to our flesh, and Satan knows just how to manipulate us in such a way to get us to dive in and indulge in it and destroy our lives. During the millennium, you will really only have two of those things, and really it's only one and a half. Because Satan is bound for a period of a thousand years, so that that part's gone. The world will be completely different. It will be governed by righteousness, ruled and reigned by Christ. So the, the world is there. It doesn't have its same draw. It isn't run by the same system. So the only thing that you have is the flesh. Let me tell you something. That's enough. (laughs) I don't know if you understand and realize that yet. Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. There is nothing. Someone asked me after last week's study, they said, hey, what's the deal with the vultures and the eagles, you know, eating the carcasses of 
people and all that. What's the deal with that? You kind of skipped over that. And I said, well, I said, that's about all our flesh is good for, bird food. That's it, <laughs> you know? And, and that's true. The flesh, our flesh is extremely wicked. Jeremiah 17, it says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who could know it? It deceives us. Our flesh is so wicked, so vile. But without the influence of the world and the devil, it's way relaxed. Do you understand? See, so those things are there. So, so far we have the binding of Satan, the judgment of nations, the ushering in of the millennium, and we're completely 100% out of time. But let me close with this. And next week we'll, we'll look into, you know, the, the, the great question that you all have right now is why in the world is Satan going to get released for a short period of time? And, and there's great reason for it. But why a millennium? I mean, why? Why? I mean, God's very logical. He doesn't just make things up, you know. Why a millennium? Where does it fit? What's the deal with this millennium thing? Throughout the whole Bible, you have this constant cycle of six and one six days god created the world and then one day it says that he rested there were six days wherein man was to do his work and in the seventh the one he was to rest for six years god told his people that you are to sow and reap in your lands but in the seventh year you're to be it's to be a sabbath year for the land you're to allow the land to rest in that seventh year a Hebrew slave, if a Hebrew had a slave, for six years the slave would serve, but in the seventh year he would go free. And there's this constant cycle of six and one. Six labor, one rest. Six work, one rest. Six bondage, one freedom. You know, and you have the six and one, the cycle that constantly keeps coming up throughout the scripture. Well, two times in the Bible, once in Psalm chapter 90, the words of Moses, and once in Peter, in the New Testament, it says this. It says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And it's confirmed and that it's spoken both in the Old Testament and in the New by Peter. And the rabbis believed in history and also as they do today, that God's timeline on planet Earth would be a period of six days and one, or six thousand years, followed by a thousand years of rest. That there would be 6,000 years of labor, 6,000 years of toil, 6,000 years of slavery, 6,000 years where in the fall the curse would be prevalent. But then that would be followed by 1,000 years where there would be rest in humanity. That the Sabbath of God's life as he intended it for man would come, that there would be 1,000 years. And it fits the biblical model. This is the first mention of this 1,000 years it throughout here at the end of the book of Revelation where it talks about how there will be a thousand years of rest. The Jews didn't know this. But yet we hear it, we revealed. Now, why is that so awesome? Here's why. Because what year is it? The year 2011. When did Christ come? Well, we know about 2,000 years ago. Well, how far before the first coming of Christ was the creation of man when God spoke light into existence? Well, if you simply take your Bible and follow the genealogies backwards, it puts it somewhere between 4002 and 4004 B.C. So if you do the math and you take 4,000 years of time from creation to Christ and 2,000 years from Christ until now, where did that put us? At the end of 6,000 years. We're right at the cusp of this 
millennial time. And as we see all things coming to their closure, their conclusion, as we see the nations aligned as God said they would be at the time when His Son would come, as we see the signs taking place in nature and in man's culture and in world politics, and we see everything lining up, we know that the coming of Christ is near. And the Bible says that when that time comes, Jesus says, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. And so this concept of the millennium of what's coming. Now, next time we will finish this, we'll look at the conclusion of this chapter and Satan being released and his ultimate destiny. We'll talk about the lake of fire. We'll talk about the great white throne. And uh, I hope your head's not spinning (laughs) right now. I know it's a lot of information, but let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave anything unmentioned, untold, but that, Lord, it's here for us to to see, to search out, to understand. And, Lord, I pray tonight for each person here that we would take seriously the challenge to consider the end of the road that we're on. Lord, many of us, we've trusted you. We're living for you. We're longing for your return. We're waiting for the culmination of these things that 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 which is veiled and shadowed would become visible and real. We would see it and know as we're known. But for some here tonight, I fear, Lord, that that they're on a road that will ultimately end in destruction, in separation, in an eternity of regret. And I just pray tonight, Father, that for this sober moment, as your Spirit is here moving among us, that you, by your power, by your Spirit, through your love, that you would help us to see the end of the road that we're on. That you'd help us to understand the lateness of the hour. The fact of your return and the truth of your word. And I pray that if there's any here that need to step off of that road and come to the door. Jesus, you said you were the door. You said if anyone enter by me, he will come in and he'll be saved. And he'll find pasture. Jesus, you said that you were the way the truth and the life and that you would lead us to the Father. You said that in you there was eternal life. And I just pray for any here tonight that have not yet come to the door, that have not set yet their feet in the highway of holiness. I pray that tonight you would meet with that person, those people, and that they would be saved that you would magnify your mercy and the salvation of their soul. Father, we pray that you would just refresh, revive, renew us as we go. Let us leave here enamored and in awe of you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.